thought she was dead. She looked dead, man. Still does. I've got an ending for you. The reporter left for dead in the news van comes to. Stumbles on you two dipshits. Finds the gun, foils your plan, and saves the day. I like that ending. Welcome to Peak Show, where mom says when I'm behind the mic, you have to treat me like a man of the law. I'm your host, super bitch, Brie Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peak. Who is with me here today? Hello, I'm Frederick Flicker, uh, and I have been in love with Scream since uh, the very first film came out in 1996, and I had to completely secretly watch it at a friend's house so my parents wouldn't find out. And I think you turned out amazingly, all things considered, Fred. <laughs> um, oh, thank so- you. Yes, now, uh, for all of you listening, Fred is not only a wonderful and dear friend of mine and just super educated in both the fields of journalism, film, everything. You are an entertainment journalist with tons of great bylines to your name, and you are an author. So can you tell me a little about a little bit about your work? Yeah, you bet. I've been writing about uh, film and entertainment for, I guess, the better part of a decade now. Um, and yeah, I've, I've written, uh, reviews and longer essays in places like Vice and Pace Magazine. Um, and I, uh, just finished a book on one of my favorite horror films, uh, Jennifer's Body. Uh, so that book called Extra Salty is going to be out in October from ECW Press. Yes. And, uh, to everyone, first of all, Jennifer's Body. I think it's finally getting this like nice renaissance where people are recognizing how great it was. I was so excited when it came out because I had just seen Juno and so I was obsessed with Diablo Cody. Um, and that was also the movie that made me realize that Megan Fox rules. And so I, I love how much you have defended not only Jennifer's body, but Megan Fox throughout the years. Um, so please tell our listeners where they can find Extra Salty. Sure. Uh, you can pretty much find it anywhere where books are sold online. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Uh, and if you ask your favorite local bookstore to order copies or your, or your local library, um, that shouldn't be too, too hard for them either. Awesome. And uh, we, have, uh, we have a tradition here on Peak Show. We ask our guests, when did you peak? When did I peak as a person? Um, I, I, would, I would like to think that I still have yet to peak. Uh, but uh, I guess everybody feels that way. We all we all hope there's more coming. Uh, I oh, think realistically, I, what's that? Sorry. Oh, like that's just super true. I'd say, uh, you know, we're all we're both in our thirties, mid thirties. Like, I'm sure the peak is yet to come. Yeah, if I can peak at like seventy or something, that'd be great. Just kind of keep keep rising until then, and then just sort of relax. That that would be beautiful. Um, <laughs> realistically, I think I'm probably peaking right now. Uh, I think I'm, I'm kind of having the time of my life. I, I'm happily married. I live in a beautiful city where I swim in the ocean every day. Uh, I get to write about TV and movies for a living. I, I mean, I get paid to just do the things I love. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think now is now is my time. I think you forgot one of the most important parts, which is that you have two amazing cats. Oh, that's true. I have Willem and Ripley, uh, two two gems. <laughs> Uh, no, nothing says film nerd like two cats named Willem and Ripley. 
All right. So as you heard off the top, we're talking about Scream and we were joking off mic that there is absolutely a uh, queer kids to genre film pipeline. <laughs> um, I know for me, um, my experience with Scream, I mean, I'm a little younger than you. Like I was born in 89. So I would have been Scream came out in 95 or 96. Um, 96. Yeah. 96. So I think I was like a first or second grader when it came out. And mm. I I didn't see it in theaters, obviously, um, because I believe like so for and I actually do have quite a few American listeners for the American listeners. The Canadian rating system is really different. Like I didn't learn until I was an adult that PG-13 was like just a suggestion. Like you can still walk in there if you're under 13. It's just like parental guidance advice. Um, in Canada, most things that are PG-13 in um, in the U.S. are rated PG here. And then if it's R, you'll either get 14A and you literally can't enter without someone who is uh, an adult unless you're 14. And then there's 18A. So it's a lot stricter. Um, I think in the U.S. even R movies, like you can go if you're like a teen, a, say 14 year old, as long as you have an adult with you. And an R or an 18A in Canada is really like it's <laughs> it's a lot more um, harsh, I would say. Oh, don't um, you out. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. And I, like, I was never a rebel who would, like, go to my, when I finally moved to a town with a multiplex, I would never sneak into a higher rated film. I, I love rules and following them. Um, <laughs> but so, like, I couldn't sneak into Scream or anything like that if I tried. And then after all that of, like, the movie being so myth mythicized, because, like, I know my older sister saw it, and she, like, told me all about the deaths and stuff, and hearing about Tatum's death made me afraid of my garage door for months. Um, but then I, um, I, like, we had a dog, and I was like, please don't put a doggy door anywhere in the house. Like, um, so, um, and then after all that buildup, I ended up watching it with my mother and sister in a hotel room in Toronto because when, you know, you're at a hotel with kids and it's too late to go to the pool or whatever, you look at, oh, what are the movies we can buy to add on to our massive room bill? And my mom's like, yeah, what? you're fine. I, I couldn't have been more than eight watching this. And I remember thinking, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought it would be. And I remember having so much fun. And I like I can safely say I didn't even come to appreciate all the unique things about Scream at the time. I just thought it was so funny and I loved the characters. And so when I found out there was a Scream 2, like, again, couldn't see it in theaters if I tried. But like, I begged my sister, like, please rent it, please rent it, please rent it. Um, and it was it was the time of my life. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I definitely did not see Scream in, in theaters. I was too young for that. But I, I had what I think is probably the ideal introduction to Scream, uh, or even the ideal introduction to horror film for, for kids. I was in the sixth grade when it came out. Um, so definitely not allowed to watch it. But I, I had, uh, you know, my best friend at the time was a year older than me, uh, which you know, when, when you're that age, having an older friend feels like the coolest thing in the world. But it also well, that's your like, ticket. Yeah, right? But it puts so much pressure on you to, like, be cool as well, to, like, live up to having an older friend. So, you know, going to his house for a sleepover and uh, and watching Scream, because he could rent Scream, and, and his parents would let him watch it, uh, 
is, is such a, you know, I don't know if that's the first horror film I've seen. I, you know, I, I had seen kind of horror adjacent things for younger audiences, things like Ghostbusters and like Tim Burton movies. But, uh, but seeing, you know, an all out horror film at that age in that context just felt so amazing. And, and you, you kind of get this rush where you want more after that. I think like I had this really weird relationship with horror movies where horror imagery when I was a kid was extremely scary to me. And I um, uh, I had a cousin who is like about, uh, I think, 10 years older than me. And um, he had a life size poster, Freddy Krueger, on his door. And I was so afraid of that poster as a little, little kid that I wouldn't go to my uncle's basement because I was afraid of the Freddy Krueger poster. And then I forget who it was. It might have even been my cousin who said, you know, those movies are actually really funny. And... I, I was like, yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure you're right, Mike. I'm sure you're right. Um, and then after Scream and realizing that horror movies could be fun, I was like, you know, maybe I am going to watch Fre that Freddy Krueger movie. And I watched my first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And that was like life changing to me because I started to really get into like the iconography and like realizing and, you know, we'll talk about this later with some of the imitators of Scream. But I think that's where some of the imitators might have fallen flat is like, uh, Williamson and uh, Craven really appreciate the need for a good iconic character uh, or yeah. image in in uh, in Scream. Um, uh, so speaking of Kevin Williamson, um, you know you always see those memes like, oh, you know, when Oprah was thirty or whatever, she was fired from her journalism job, and Tina Fey at twenty seven was working at a YMCA. Nothing makes me feel like less advanced in my career than knowing that Kevin Williamson was like twenty seven when he wrote this, or like in his mid twenties. Oh just like, because and and I'll say, I think he hit it right off the park. Because yeah, he was he was a twenty something screenwriter. He hadn't much to his name at that point. Uh, the original draft was a scary movie, which we'll also get to. Um, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, and he wrote the film, uh, wrote the screenplay after a series of murders near, near Palm Springs, and he was inspired by the original slasher era movies with which he grew up. Uh, his agent warned him against the level of gore and violence in the script, but when the film was purchased by Miramax and Wes Craven came on board, a lot of the gore remained, which is fantastic. And looking back on it now, doesn't that kind of strike you as precious? Because like this was before the era of torture porn and stuff, when... It was just how gory can we get? Like Scream seems so tame in comparison. It does, yeah, and it has such buildup to every every kind of gory death is so just like steeped in this kind of suspense that I think is one of the things that's so great about it. And I mean, I, to be honest, I I do love the torture porn genre. I find it so oh yeah <laughs> just disturbing in all the in all the right ways. But it does often lack that. I think I think. Uh, you know, the thought franchise is that it's best when it kind of builds that tension before it gives you these intense kills. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, Scream is all about that. Well, and um, with mentioning Scary Movie, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this parody movie, but there is a lesser known teen slasher parody movie called Shriek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th. Um, it's <laughs> I know, okay. but I have not seen it. <laughs> so it's a really interesting lore because it was supposed to come out before Scary Movie, and it didn't have like the power of the Wayans Brothers or anything like that. But it starred um, Tom Arnold and Tiffany Amber Thiessen, which that should tell you like this is the ultimate D-list kind of kind of flick. But um, I it so when they fast tracked the release date for Scary Movie shriek decided like we can't compete with this we're gonna go straight to vhs and i rented it thinking it was scary movie like just kind of absently from my blockbuster and 
it's actually really funny. But the big thing about it that's kind of the running joke is the killer never ends up killing anyone. Everyone, he like chases them around and they die by accident. Um, And so it's never actually him doing it. And I'm like, that is actually probably a better commentary on Scream than Scary Movie ever was. Yeah, that's a great bit. I'm going to have to track that down and watch it because that that description makes me think that's a really clever take. (laughs) It is. Oh, Majandra Delfino is also in it. And um, here's the name you haven't heard in a while. Simon Rex is in it. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a I love it. That's a testament to 2000, if I ever heard it. Um, So Wes Craven, uh, with him, many viewed his direction of the movies with their famously meta style as sort of him reconciling the part he played in the horror genre and the so-called glorification of violence or desensitization to violence. Um, While Scream is an homage, the first movie was also notable for breaking all sorts of cliches, taboos, and more. Um, And it paid off. It made $173 million at the box office, so making back more than 10 times its budget, which for horror and especially R-rated horror is essentially unheard of. Um, It also famously didn't have a lot of nudity, which I love that about Scream. Um, And and it, I mean, look, Scream did not invent the final girl trope, um, but it has been lauded in general for its portrayal of women uh, with pretty much all the female characters, even like I, one of my favorite characters from the whole series is Tatum uh, because she's supposed to be, you know, the hot girl or like Gail, who's a mean girl. They're still undeniably very smart and very strong. Like they never, I don't think they ever insult the, um, the women in um, as characters. Um, Finally, it was also a big career resurrection for Drew Barrymore, and that was her big transition from, you know, troubled child star to an extremely bankable grown-up star and the wonderful, smiling, lovely lady we know today. Yeah, I totally agree that the treatment of women in these films and the, the way that these kind of somewhat problematic characters, these, these women like Gail Weathers, who, you know, she isn't this outright hero. She's, she's almost a villain in so much of it. Um, mm-hmm. She gets so much respect throughout that series, and she gets to kind of grow and be messy and, and just be, like, absolutely uh, just, like, magnetic to watch. Yeah, um, Gail, Gail rules. Gail rules so much. Um, I'm not a Friends fan. But I was um, like, I have nothing against Friends. I'm just not a fan. I don't like laugh track shows very much. Um, But just last weekend, I was watching Friends with my sister-in-law. And she was saying something about like when that was filmed. And I'm like, how much was Courtney Cox friggin' doing in the 90s? Like, she never, nowadays when you watch any sitcom and it's like, oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, hey, Rose has gone for a few episodes. Oh, that's because Stephanie Beatrice was filming in the Heights or whatever. There's no like long stretch without Monica. Yeah, like, and so, they, those were like those were twenty four episode seasons back then. On yeah. top of that, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. So the second movie was greenlit pretty much immediately, and it premiered less than one year after the first. Um, even though it was set like a year or two years after, so we're we're working in a fake nineteen ninety nine, which I always thought was funny. Um, yeah. Although it was that was subject to one of the first high profile script leaks on the Internet, which resulted in some notable changes, namely the identity of one of the killers. Uh, one of the killers, I believe, was originally uh, Hallie, um, Sid's roommate. So they went back for retooling. I think it's funny because if you leak a script in 1997, how many people like how many people are actually going to get that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Online culture was so different back then that it's like, I mean, I, I was still pretty young, but I don't remember being in any way aware of of what was going on with with Screen Two and and what was being leaked online. It's kind of it's kind of wild. 
ahead of its time in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Scream 2 had a way higher budget than the original. It made close to what the first did, so obviously not as good of returns as you'd... Um, but, like, you still have to really respect that for a horror film. And even as you look at the diminishing returns of Scream 3 and 4, um, like, by the time you're at Scream 4, it did make back twice its budget. And really today, and I'm not even counting the COVID factor, which, side note... Why are we talking about box office failures right now as if the pandemic isn't a thing? <laughs> oh, man, don't get yeah. me started. But um, yeah, like I feel like if you didn't have the legacy of Scream 1 and Scream 2 before you, make a, an R-rated horror making back twice its budget is pretty respectable. But um, yeah. it's it was they've been viewed as failures. Um, so... Uh, also, I, I forgot to write this down, but Scream 3 was actually ridiculously delayed because of uh, the Columbine shootings. I mean, as a society, TM, we weren't really ready to see that much violence on screen again. And it went through some serious rewrites to take down the violence. Um, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. I mean, and we'll we'll get into my issues with Scream 3 later, but um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it Scream 3, like, it's interesting because the one thing when I watch it, I'm like, this feels rushed, even though it is the opposite of rush. It was a, it should have come out so much earlier and just they, no one was ready to do the first big violent movie. Yeah, took a few years to get the soft franchise really going. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. This is one of the first times on Peak Show that I am actually ahead of the news a little bit or we got some... Uh, something's not going to be outdated by the time we talk about it, fingers crossed. Um, just announced a couple weeks ago that the fifth movie has actually been greenlit. They have signed on the, um, they have signed on some, all the former stars. It's going ahead. I guess it's going to be the first since uh, Wes Craven passed. So I'm maybe a little tentative still, but I feel like because I have very positive feelings about Scream 4, I'm definitely going to go see it. I'm so excited about it. And the, the, the people making it were the, the folks who made uh, Ready or Not a couple years back, which was just an absolutely wonderful kind of ether-rich uh, survivalist kind of horror film uh, that, that totally feels like it's on the same page as Scream. So, it, it, yeah, I, I have very high hopes. <laughs> I had to look up when you wrote in the notes that it was the team behind Ready or Not because I thought you were talking about the 90s Canadian teen show Ready or Not. <laughs> That would have been amazing, too. They should make a Scream movie. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I know that Scream didn't launch any particular careers, but I think it really just... I I have nothing but positive feelings for almost all... I, I know uh, Nev Campbell was on Party of Five at the time, right? Like, she wasn't unheard of. Um, yeah, yeah, that's nor right. was, that, yeah. Was, that was very... Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that has been one of the influences of... of Scream is that kind of like the stars of these teen shows throughout the 90s and 2000s would go on to make these kind of teen horror films. Actors from Dawson's Creek, uh, you know, like any teen show that had its had its star would, would kind of veer off into a horror film, I think. Yeah, and, and it's uh, spiritual slash creator twin. I know what you did last summer, like Jennifer Love Hewitt, also Party of Five. Um, Sarah Michelle yeah. Geller, who was both in I Know What You Did and a small part in Scream 2. Um, you know, she was she was our Buffy gal. Um, I think, um, yeah. and wait, Joshua Jackson was in Scream 2 as well, wasn't he, for like a minute? He was, yeah. Yeah. And in um, Urban Legend. Oh my God, it's... 
<laughs> it's really hard to keep track at times. Um, yeah. I, so, yeah, I, um, I kind of want to get into it not necessarily because I feel like everything will always circle back to Scream 1 for me. Because I want to get into it how we feel about Scream 2, mainly because I think throughout the entire time I've known you, I've always known that you are a bit nicer to way nicer to Scream 2 than I. Um, I was shocked to see that actually on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a higher critical consensus than than Scream. I just think like even if you think it's a great movie and a really strong sequel, I, I don't... And I will also say, I think with a movie like Scream, you literally have to have a sequel. But I don't think it improved on anything that Scream was missing or anything, unless you count Laurie Metcalf, because I think everything is better with Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> everything without Laurie Metcalf is missing Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, Laurie, Laurie Metcalf and uh, Timothy Oliphant, I think, are such great, great oh, additions yeah. to the, the Scream universe for me. Uh, and I, I want to see them work together again. I want, I want like a true detective season where they're the two, the two detectives at the heart of it or something like that. Yeah, I really like, because I mean, uh, the kind of there's always two killers uh, thing, which I guess you could say is a trope. I think it's not a bad trope. I love that it's two different generations of killers uh, with two very different motivations, which is a big uh, switch from Billy and Stu. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you want to talk about the rules of the sequel, uh, uh, the way Randy does, that kind of legacy element of having Mrs. Loomis, I think, is great. And then... Maybe I'm to some degree I'm grateful for the the script leak because I'm guessing it was it was Mickey uh, Tim, Timothy Oliphant's character who must have been swathed in as the second killer, uh, having the other killer be so tied to horror films and so tied mm -hmm. to this idea of whether or not uh, scary movies are turning turning the nation's youth into killers or or whatever nonsense. You know I love that Wes Craven got to play around with that idea. I think he's somebody who who really is kind of uh, or, or really was was very aware of that that notion of the responsibility that comes with putting these images out into the world, and mm -hmm. he very consistently, I think, falls on the side of no, of course people aren't turning into killers because they watch these movies, but it's still something we should talk about. It's still something we should play with, and it's still something that influences how we how we live in this society. Uh, and so I, yeah. that's one of the things I love about Scream and about that effectively kind of a random reveal. It's not like the end of Scream Two. You get there and you think, oh, of course, now everything makes sense. You know, you, you could kind of swap out those killers for any number of people and, and still sort of cobble together an explanation. But, but I love that those are the two that, that he decided to go with. I mean, it's interesting because when I, like, I am notorious for, despite how much I love genre film, never seeing a twist coming. Like, everyone makes fun of me for the fact that one of my favorite movies, Us, I didn't see the twist. And... I didn't see it coming and I was shocked with my jaw on the ground and my best friend looks at me like you seriously didn't think that was what happened and um but at you know eight or nine or however I old I was I knew there was something up with Debbie Salt and so I was not shocked when she turned out to be the killer I was shocked when she turned out to be Mrs. Loomis because there's nothing that would indicate that. Um, and I don't actually think that's a problem. I'm not like, what a weird logical leap. Because again, like, I, I do think of that as a very legitimate commentary on horror films. Like, oh, we, we introduced a character just to say, surprise, she's related to someone from the last film. Like, that is very much something they seem aware of. But um, like Debbie Salt, it's not, it, 
it's not a twist in my mind like that she's the killer but i think that's kind of what's fun what's fun about it is i know this lady is involved somehow i it's her connection that is the surprise and i like that yeah and i think that twist that she's billy's mother uh really fits nicely with her own her own kind of gripes about how we we always blame the mother every time a child does something we we look to the mother because she's right you know she makes that point and she's absolutely right and so i think it works so well to then go from that point that she makes to the otherwise kind of invisibility of mothers uh mm-hmm. where she's been here in front of us this whole time and nobody pieced together that she was billy's mom because she's so forgettable she's just She's just like some lady who's covering these murders. And so you get to the end and it's like, yeah, that is a really tragic existence she's lived. She she had to kind of live in the shadows, except as the villain who must have been responsible for Billy becoming this killer. Mm-hmm. And even when she adopts a fake persona, no one can stand her. And I think it is just like this very tense, like she kind of is anxiety incarnate almost like just this is a person who is holding on to like their last whatever um i also i think maybe that's one of the things like i i still don't enjoy scream 3 that much but one thing that i think scream 4 kind of forgot is how much much of this comes down to maureen prescott and um in, in a way maybe it's kind of a way of saying like not everything bad in the world that happened is more is the fault of Maureen Prescott. But I did find it um, a bit surprising that nothing with Sid's mom really came into play in Scream 4 uh, because that so became such a persistent part of the Scream mythos that when the twist was revealed in Scream 3, I was like, oh, like, is this going to be the thing that follows Sydney around for her whole life? Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that with, with Scream 4. We kind of get that sense of, like, Sydney actually having a, a larger family uh, within mm-hmm. the town, which, which I think we hadn't quite had before. It was just kind of her and her dad against the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it really doesn't kind of – the sort of blame that's been put on Maureen Prescott really does just kind of disappear at that point. You're totally right. Mm-hmm. I feel like what what separates Wes Craven from from a lot of other directors of that era is the fact that he had an academia background. And that's not to say, like, I'm not one of those snobs that thinks, like, everything has to come from this heady academic place. Um, But even just understanding the right way to create something that is self-parody and do that in a way that doesn't hit you over the head. Um, His films, like, always work on two levels. Like, I can watch any of the 80s movies and like them for the scares, and I can come back to it and say, oh, I also like the commentary on family dynamic, um, which is why I've always had this, like, private desire to see what Craven's take on The Shining would be. Um, On the other hand, I can watch Scream and say, oh, I really like the suspense, or I really like the characters. Or I can watch it and say, I enjoy the commentary on teenage obsession with horror movies and our desensitization to violence. Yeah, I mean, I, I one of the one of the criticisms that kind of seems to get leveled against Scream and has since the start is that it's like almost too clever for its own good or it over intellectualizes this stuff. And I just feel like I, I don't know if that's coming from a generation that hasn't done this with movies and TV. If that criticism is coming from the, these older generations or what? Because for me, that's one of the great things. Like right from the start in Scream One, is like, yeah, that's that. This is totally like a Gen X. Uh, vision of how kids talk and how, you know, ever since then, we always tie things to movies. We always have a Simpsons reference for whatever's happening in the world. We always have some, like, 
ready-made meme where it's like, oh, yeah, this is just like Tony Stark doing whatever in the Avengers movies or, or like, or you know, anything. Kind of insert your favorite pop culture thing. Insert whatever whatever your in-group is really obsessed with. Um, and that's, that's totally how, like, we filter the world we live in through all of this pop culture. And I think mm-hmm. Wes Craven... Uh, or, or I mean, you know, maybe, maybe your point about having having a younger a younger screenwriter like Kevin Williamson, who really was part of that that Gen X uh, kind of pop culture ecosystem, is is why that worked out that way. Yeah. Uh, but I, I absolutely love that Wes Anderson kind of or <laughs> Wes Anderson. <laughs> Can I you just, imagine a Wes Anderson slasher? <laughs> ooh, I, I hope he goes there one day. <laughs> um, It'd be so cute. Yeah, I mean, Wes Craven kind of feeling like like he's always had his finger on the pulse of like what the youth are into is really cool and it's one of the things I, I absolutely respect about him as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, on that note, because we mentioned um, the nine eleven holdup of Scream Three, I also think that the nine late nineties was the last era of the moral panic of like desensitization to violence. Um, and at first, I found that weird that that all occurred pre nine eleven and pre forever wars. Until I realized, maybe this is just a theory, maybe I'm totally off, but I feel like the moral panic over desensitization to violence dried up after 9-11 because we didn't want to draw attention to the fact that all we witness is violence anymore. Like, because, but, you know, I was 12 when, when that happened, and all I saw on the TV was violence, and suddenly no one was worrying about kids watching violent stuff anymore. Yeah, and, and like for whatever reason, that kind of shifted over to video games at some point. I think <laughs> we we started deciding that school shootings were were because of video games, which I, I still don't understand why video games. It's like I guess we need a scapegoat, and so somebody decided, eh, let's move on from movies and go to video games. Yeah, and and in many ways, Scream talked a lot about the scapegoating aspect. Um, you know, yeah. movies don't create psychos; movies make psychos more creative. Um, yeah, it was. It was Tim Oliphant who said, you know, we'll blame we'll blame the movies and um, or talking about, you know, killers, killers getting fame. It's a lot of cliches that people believe that aren't necessarily true. But I mean, I, I really think of Scream as a heightened reality. Like you, you're talking about like the way the way they speak. It's really not that far off from reality. I just think of it as a sort of, yeah, heightened reality and only heightened in the social sense. Like everything is still physically very grounded in reality. Yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned Mickey as well, and I think one of the things that that is so great about Mickey as this this kind of uh, killer formed in 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 this kind of pop culture bubble of his is that he's more aware of it than anybody else. It's not like he's actually been warped by films. It's like he's created this elaborate legal defense for himself, thinking, oh, this will work. I can actually weaponize the fact that there's this moral panic about violence in movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so brilliant. That's, that's, such a, that's such a great way to frame that. So, like, what are the... There, there are really only two things that I'm a little unforgiving to uh, scream to about. Um, and I'll also say, you, you know, we mentioned Laurie Metcalf, we mentioned Tim Oliphant. I actually think Jerry O'Connell is so likable in that movie. Oh my God, yeah. He's he's a sweetie. And like T- Tim Oliphant is my bad boy and Jerry O'Connell is my sweetie in that movie. Um, yeah. I sound, oh my gosh, I sound like one of those people who writes letters to serial killers or something. But, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so my two main gripes with Scream 2 are one, just it's too long. I, I just, I have a real thing against movies that are too long. I don't have anything against movies that deserve to be that long because everyone knows how much I love Midsummer uh, and the director's cut. But um, 
I just think um, when there's something weird about the pacing, when you have something that is like very snappy and like oversaturated in dialogue, it can feel like a bit of a like a bit of a track meet or a bit of a, a like a like you're sprinting, but for a long distance. And um, I like I have to get up and stretch my legs when I watch Scream 3 or Scream 2, even though I like longer movies. I can see that, you know, and, and I think one of the, uh, I mean, you may have your own reasons for, for feeling this way, but I, I think one of the things that makes it feel overstuffed is how many characters are in it. Yeah, um, so that was the other thing. I, the other problem I have was the characters that they introduce in some ways feel like weird replacements for characters. Like Sarah Michelle Gellar as Cece, the sorority girl, it kind of feels like, okay, we killed off Tatum, which Tatum was, I, I, I wish Tatum hadn't died. Um, yeah. but, um, it's like, so we need to bring back our, you know, cute, but kind of smart girl. So let's bring, bring in another like person to fill that role. And even Mickey kind of feels like, you know, at the end of Scream 1, when there's that tension of, is it Billy and Sue or is it, uh, is it Randy? It kind of feels like the reality in which Randy had been the killer. Like, right. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's totally true. I think there is something weird about having randy killed off and then effectively have the killer just be randy 2.0 yes randy if he had made some some bad decisions but um so um with all the talk about like you know labels on genre and stuff about six months ago i was kind of pondering uh to myself online as i often do um if someone would call this franchise elevated horror today um knowing very well that i and benny find the label tiresome but i really I accept that it's out there. I accept that people use the term elevated horror. Um, one of my friends had a really, actually, friend, I think it was friend of the show, Jason Edwards, who you can hear on our second Simpsons episode. Um, he had a really interesting point in which the term elevated horror is really a product of the extremely online generation. And the Scream franchise, at least the first three, but I think still Scream 4 because like Facebook didn't own Instagram back then. Um, the it's a real relic of the time before extremely online was a thing. And so I really like that Scream um, predates any concept of being elevated horror. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think, well, maybe I have two, two feelings on this because I feel like, I think you're right. Elevated horror as a concept feels like a very online concept. It also feels very tied to the way we talk about, um, questions of social justice today uh, and yeah. in the way that we've kind of mainstreamed those discussions and that there's even this kind of debate about, you know, the woke left and all of this kind of nonsense. <laughs> um, and, and, and so you get elevated horror, which is this kind of like thoughtful, political, uh, you know, socially aware uh, uh, horror filmmaking that kind of ties into, you know, Get Out is obviously the perfect example where I think... Um, you can be this kind of uh, this kind of uh, self-professed uh, evolved white liberal and, and really appreciate <laughs> what it's trying to do, uh, or it follows, which is really about sexual violence. When you look at what the metaphors are and, and this kind of stuff, so there is that. And I think one of the reasons that I think if Scream had come out today, one of the reasons it wouldn't be called elevated horror is that it's so much for teens. Uh, it's it it's about teens and it's it's for teens and I think teens just don't get that kind of respect. Um, like we're not going to see Netflix's Fear Street films ever be described as elevated horror. I think uh, for exactly mm -hmm. that reason, they're kind of messy and young and 
you know, for whatever reason, those things don't get to be elevated. Um, yeah. That's such a thing. I really never thought about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's, I say that, and, and even saying that, I have to acknowledge that the screen films were well received when they came out, you know, even yes. though nobody was calling them elevated horror because we, we weren't calling films that, uh, critics were kind of on board in a way that I think often, often doesn't happen with, with horror generally, but, but teen horror specifically, with the exception of, of things like, uh, like Halloween, which I think was, was very well received when it came out. Um, mm. yeah. And really, like, I don't even have that much of a problem with the fact that, yes, Scream 3 was a bit of a dip, and even Scream 4 wasn't as strong as the first two. Because, like, if you look at every horror franchise that has been driven into the ground, like, um, and I also think sometimes maybe that's why a, a good lesson that Scream 4 learned from Scream 3 is that the young, the youth of the Scream franchise is so a big part of its appeal. Um, and it's not even in the way that our society can sometimes be like creepily obsessed with youth. Like right now I find millennials are so obsessed with Gen Z culture and it's it's a bit off-putting to me. But yeah. um, there's something about the Scream dynamic though that doesn't necessarily work with adult, Sid adult Sydney like being now on the same level and contemporaries with uh, Dewey and Gale. Um, at least when you go back to Woodsboro and you've got, you know, her slightly younger cousins and all her friends and stuff like that. I think they kind of knew where their strength was. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I think, you know, one of my favorite things about the Scream franchise, I, I, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about uh, where it peaks. And it's such a shockingly consistent franchise. Uh, mm -hmm. Even three, I, you know, I quite like Scream 3. I think it's probably the only one in the franchise that nobody really ever stands up for all that much. But if you were to canvas all of the Scream franchise fans and ask them when the series peaked, I think one, two, and four all have their really vocal supporters. Mm -hmm. um, but, but one of the things that I think as a franchise it does that's, that's relatively unique is uh, it's really a franchise about survivors. Um, mm -hmm. We're so used to slasher franchises where the hero dies in the second or third film, or just kind of disappears and the focus shifts, but it's the monster. It's, you know, it's, it's Freddy, it's Jason, it's Chucky, it's, it's Pinhead. Yeah. Those are the characters who kind of, we follow through it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think Halloween kind of corrected course. At some point they were like, you know what, this works way better when we have Lori. So let's try to get yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis back. But even that franchise, you know, for, for a good chunk of films throughout the nineties, uh, she was nowhere. She was nowhere around. That was Michael Myers. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, so Scream kind of has that built in, which I think is so cool. But, but totally, like you said, I think the the built in weakness of that is, oh no, these people get older. They're not going to be. They're not going to be teenagers doing fun, stupid, uh, dangerous teenager stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um and and on that note because i was just thinking about this like literally you you texted me and i was taking a walk and writing down notes um but another thing i love about scream like you know and we will definitely talk about these scream you know for better or for worse copycats it did not just kick off what was seen as a revival of the teen slashers but also a revival i think of teen ensemble movies like there were a few standouts in that genre in the early 90s like I don't even know. I go back and forth with whether or not people count Clueless as an ensemble or not. Like, I do, but it really is Alicia Silverstone's movie. But yeah. I do think that Scream was such a well-done elevation, not to use that word again, but it really was, like, 
proving teen movies can be sophisticated teen movies can be intelligent and you know these are very intelligent charming people and so i do think it paved the way for movies like american pie which i think is very underrated for how intelligent it is the first one at least uh varsity blues and another one super underrated for its wit bring it on like um i think the teen ensemble movie again like was a real mark of the 80s you know whether it was more the john hughes movies or you know the gross out movies but I think the comeback was driven like the bus was at least driven in part by Scream because it just really showed a thoughtfulness to how teens were portrayed. Totally. Yeah. And you get like uh, I, I think Kevin Williamson was was actually one of the writers on Dawson's Creek, if I'm remembering right. I'm, I might he be was. That wrong. OK, no, he, that that's why uh, Pacey shows up in Scream 2 for no reason. <laughs> Oh, that makes sense. But yeah, Dawson's <laughs> Creek, I mean, that was like a blockbuster TV show. Uh, it and really it, it, was. It, it totally had that kind of ahead of its time, you know, uh, uh, for better or worse, teenagers kind of talking like adults. Um, mm-hmm. Like people loved and hated that about it, but, that it was these kind of like extremely like bookish and, and uh, articulate teenagers. Um, having these kind of sophisticated conversations about their everyday problems, uh, and it and it wasn't just kind of gross out, you know, pulling pranks, uh, uh, you know, making sure we win the big football game. It was like real people with real problems that they were dealing with, and and like yeah. kind of profound relationships with each other. And that totally does feel like like a product of Scream. I, I agree. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even American Pie, like I will defend him. I'll probably end up doing the American Pie series on this show um, at some point. But I firmly believe that if you didn't have um, uh, if you didn't have Jim fuck a pie and if you didn't have Steve Stifler drinking jizz in in that movie, it would actually be a really thoughtful movie about relationships and male pressure and stuff. And it it really actually does carry it out very well. So um, and, and I think like that's why. I was so surprised when I saw, oh, Kevin Williamson also did Dawson's Creek until I realized, like, there, it's, it almost makes you realize, like, the limitations of labels, like, oh, they're a horror writer or a horror director or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of like um, maybe people who are 17, 18 who have seen Get Out would be so shocked to know that Jordan Peele came from comedy. But it's like, right. when you think about it, like, the things that Jordan Peele is good at has nothing to do with genre. Yeah. And so often the things that work so well in comedy writing are exactly the things that work so well in, in horror writing. It's all about timing. It's all about delivery. Um, and, and it's all about kind of shock in a lot of, in a lot of cases, <laughs> I think, you know, the, yeah. if you see something coming, it doesn't make you laugh. And if you see something coming, it doesn't, it doesn't make you afraid either. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and so obviously we're talking a lot about the imitators and stuff and those that were kind of aping Williamson. Um, I mean, I know what you did last summer doesn't count because it is Williamson. Um, right. I'd say the most egregious is Urban Legend. Um, and I know, you, again, you are much more generous to Urban Legend than I am. But I will say what I think I can't stand about Urban Legend is that no one in that cast is likable. Whereas I think yeah. like Sid, like even Dewey, ACAB except for Dewey, um, like they're all extremely likable and like even though randy today we would call him like a nice guy or an incel like he's a very likable guy and the biggest problem with um urban legend is that alicia witz is so un- her character is so unlikable there's nothing like if, if anything that movie should be about tara reed yeah yeah i mean <laughs> like you said with scream i would even add Stu and billy to that list like Stu oh, and yeah. billy are, are like 
so obnoxious in some ways, but also they're like the cool guys who you who you like want to be friends with. You want them to approve of you when you when you get to the end of the killers. It's kind of like oh, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Bill, Billy kind of feels like he's going to be the killer throughout. Stu is the big shock. You're like, oh no, he's the class clown. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And, you know, with talking about the queer kids to genre film pipeline um, and I was like, oh, why is that? And then I remembered, oh, Stu and Billy, like, and you can't even say homoerotic undertones. It's tones, man. Like, oh, man. Yeah. Is it ever? Oh, it's it's lovely. And I I was thinking, oh, if they remade Scream today, like they would actually be lovers. But I'm actually fine with them. Not like I always believe like. I know sometimes people say that, you know, old films like, oh, well, this was actually a relationship and they could have shown it or whatever. I don't think you have to show two people literally embracing amorously to kind of canon it as a romance. Like their death scene together is one of tragic lovers. And so I like yeah. it being that way. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think, yeah. yeah, throughout the throughout the, the film, there's there's I I would even say that Tatum and Sydney, to some extent, I oh, I, I, you're not I wrong. Think you can definitely queer that <laughs> uh, in a way that's in a way that's really satisfying and, and doesn't feel like superficial. It feels very much like oh yeah, no, there's there's something there as well. Yeah, um, and uh, one of the other things that is is not quite an imitator, um, but I think you can tell they were trying it was final destination and i love final destination as a, as a franchise again it's it's coming onto this show sometime next season um yeah. but it's the first film especially because the first film was really the actually the third one as well were the ones where it was te- a teen ensemble and they were trying really hard i would argue that the most williamsony character in final destination was the first one killed that was the the character of todd cuz he's the one that's all like we got to go take a shit because we don't want the girls to come be- come in behind us on the plane and feel hear or smell that we took a shit and like it's this kind yeah. of like i am overthinking and overcomplicating every concept and then i'm going to explain explain it to you it's very much like a character in a shakespearean comedy <laughs> yeah. but but not good <laughs> Yeah, and I and I think there's I think you're right. I, I would definitely put Final Destination into that that category of of you know the the film born of Scream, where it is picking apart the tropes in the sense that okay, we know these people have to die. Now we have to figure out you know there's like there's a built-in analysis of storytelling. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's happening there without necessarily having the the wink at the audience kind of like we understand tropes we we're we're playing with tropes and the tropes are part of this we know how movies work and we know that this works like a movie but more importantly the characters know that this works like a movie and final destination i think doesn't have that you know going back to urban legends i think that's one of the things i like about urban legends is that it takes that kind of premise and 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 follows through with it and gives us this kind of you know how are urban myths made? How are how mm-hmm. how do we process them? Um, yeah. And I think we've only started to get that. Actually, you know, the Chucky films did that. Uh, mm-hmm. Chucky films started to do that kind of later on, not too long after Scream. But I think we've been seeing yeah. a resurgence of that now with things like Happy Death Day and Freaky, um, yep. which really play with the tropes in in a way that feels really clever and fresh but totally on the same page as screen yeah 
Um, the the other thing, and I, I go back and forth, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? You know, we were talking about earlier, having an iconic figure, uh, horror figure, which is really like, you know, an ode to Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and stuff. Um, and that's one thing Final Destination didn't have, but it was kind of yeah. on purpose, the idea that what you're afraid of is unseen. And um, so in a way, it's a subversion. And I guess that's cool. By the way, I was just thinking about this. Um, the character Todd, who is like, yeah, let's go take a shit. I have only ever seen him in two other films. One is one of my favorite bad movies from this era. Have you ever seen Disturbing Behavior? No. Oh, I need to watch oh, that one. That's Katie you Holmes, really? right? It's Katie Holmes, it's James Morrison, it's Nick Stahl, and uh, that actor, Chad Danella, he is one of the only examples in film I can ever think of of albinism face. He plays someone oh. with albinism for no reason. It's of no importance to the plot. So they do him up like he has albinism. And he's like a, a stoner character who kind of, again, is like this weird little gesture. Um, I think you'd really like Disturbing Behavior. I have like an un irrational defense of that movie. <laughs> All right, that, that and Shriek are going on the list. Yay. And um, then yeah. he also he also shows up, you know, as a full grown adult in a Saw movie. He's in, um, I think, the one where they finally kill Hoffman, um, the one that oh, has nice. a camp, a cameo by Chester Bennington. He's like the detective, and he's terrible in it. <laughs> so, nice. um, yeah, just thought I'd put, throw in my little trivia of actors no one should care about. Um, but yeah, so talking about the parody, like scary movie, um, I think you're kind of right that like, there were a lot of things that indicated to me that the creators of Scary Movie either didn't understand or didn't care that, like, Scream kind of already did their job for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scream is so close to parody. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, I, th I think most parodies work, uh, work best if the person doing the parodying loves the thing that they're parodying. Um mm -hmm. For, for any any of your listeners who are Star Trek fans, you know, the, the current animated Star Trek series, Lower Decks, is such a send-up of everything that's happened in Star Trek uh, since the very first series. It's like poking holes in everything that kind of doesn't add up. It's making fun of storylines that are kind of infamously bad. It's, it's doing all of this stuff. But it has just this kind of heart and soul of a Trekkie. Um, <laughs> in a way that's so satisfying to watch. And, and Scream feels that way. Scream feels like... These are people who absolutely love this genre and mm -hmm. they're just tearing it apart and kind of seeing what makes it tick in a way that's like really fascinating to watch and makes you want to go watch all of those films that they're referring to. And mm -hmm. there's something about scary movie that just feels almost mean spirited. Um, it, it's like nothing about that movie feels celebratory, but it also doesn't feel all that informed. It feels like somebody watched one or two horror films and was like, well, this is stupid. Yeah. And then just made fun of it in a movie. And it's like, who is this for? How is this satisfying? <laughs> That's also why I find Shriek is a more, I, I wouldn't even say satisfying watch because it's kind of like, I, Scary Movie promised me a Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, gave me kind of like a cardboard Thanksgiving dinner, whereas Shriek promised me gummy bears and gave me gummy bears. Like, um, right, right. like yeah. the jokes aren't about horror movies and it's never about how it's better than horror movies. Um, like their jokes, like there's just this one random scene where for no reason Tom Arnold and a pizza delivery guy break into playing the bongos and it's there. It has nothing to do with anything. But I like it so much better than what is, frankly, a scary movie 
pretending it's better than horror movies. And yeah, I it's not to say I don't find scary movie funny. Like I think Anna Ferris is very, very funny. I think um that John Abrahams, I think he is super duper funny. Um, I can do without all the quote unquote special people jokes, but I mean, that's yeah. me versus every movie in the 90s, I guess. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think uh, there's all of these kind of dated jokes that are like absolutely offensive throughout. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're right. Anna Ferris is like such a, such an underused comedic genius in so many yes. ways. But it, like, what does it for me? I think with with scary movie is one of the very first scenes does the play on Billy going into Sydney's bedroom, um, mm-hmm. and they kind of have this confrontation. And in Scream, they have this confrontation where uh, he's, you know, Billy is comparing their relationship to movies and TV shows, and Sydney says it's not a movie, Billy, and he responds, you know, something to the effect of it's all a movie. Uh, and, and you get this kind of moment of like, oh, yeah, these, these kids do filter everything through the movies they watch, through the pop culture they consume. And mm-hmm. Scary Movie just plays that scene totally straight. And then when it gets to the point where Billy Stanton says, it's all just a movie, he then starts pointing to the cast, to, to like the crew who are around them. And the camera kind of pans to the side and shows you, oh, yeah, it's literally a movie being made. And it's like, like watching that, um, Watching that scene in Scream is like that's the whole point of that scene. The whole point is to is to remind you, the viewer, it is a movie. She just said it's not a movie, but you know you're watching a movie, and this whole movie is going to be about the fact that it's a movie and about the fact that other movies exist within this narrative. You know, it's, yeah. it's a horror movie that acknowledges other horror movies in a way that usually that doesn't happen or hadn't happened up to that point. And and you know, scary movie just comes in and completely lazily explains the joke for you, but <laughs> pretends that it's doing something other than explaining the joke for you. It pretends yeah. that it's better than the joke. And it's it's so lazy. <laughs> it is. It's and like, to borrow like from infuriating. <laughs> to borrow from what you said earlier about how we all have a Simpsons reference for every situation. And uh, that's that's true for me, baby. Um that's the joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I like lately, I've just been kind of responding by posting that picture of Rainier Wolfcastle without even saying that's the joke because you can kind of hear it yeah. in your head. But like, yeah, I think like where where I think Scary Movie is fun and I, I've always loved parody films for this is just the absurd physical comedy, like, you know, throwing a million things down the stairs and whatever. That's where it's at. It's truly like most airplane like. But um, yeah. because uh, but otherwise, it's kind of. I, I want to say, like, be, I keep coming back to it thinks it's better than the horror movies. And it's like Scream. The the one thing about Scream is it doesn't believe it's better than anything. It just knows what it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it totally does. I You know, a, a couple of years ago, I, I had the I had the pleasure of interviewing the guy who directed all of the Sharknado films. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> I, and I talked to him about about this, like this notion of 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 parody and of, of what the Sharknado films are doing and, and where he thinks they exist within the broader, within the broader world of shark movies. And and he was very upfront about this kind of like, people go online and make fun of these movies. And it's like, do you think I don't know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, you know, I've watched all these shark movies. I know the ways in which my movies are ridiculous. They're supposed to be ridiculous. What do you think mm-hmm. you're like, you're getting one over on me? I know yeah. that that stuff is in the movies. I put it there. <laughs> 
That's so awesome. Which on that note, I think a very similar filmmaker, although um, maybe not as easy to respect, but um, Tom Six liked one of my tweets today. So there you go. Um, Tom <laughs> Six, director of The Human Centipede. Um, uh, I sometimes think this is going to sound like a really random thing to pull out of my ass, but I sometimes think that's part of our societal obsession with The Room. Um which I have completely moved on from caring about the room at all. Like, I'm really glad we're past that stage, like post-disaster artist, where everyone just wanted to talk about the room all the time. Um, yeah. And like, it's not even a thing film nerds care about anymore um, or bad movie nerds. But um, I think the reason why everyone came to embrace the room as like the ultimate bad movie was because of Tommy Wiseau and because Tommy Wiseau very clearly has seemingly no idea how bad the room is and then kind of tried to hide behind oh it was meant to be this way and like scream gave or scream the room gave us something to feel better than and um it appears like genuine you are genuinely able to feel better than tommy Wiseau. um whereas sharknado it's like this yeah this is a movie that absolutely knows how bad it is and is still it's made its money off of people thinking that they know better than the person who made it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the room left a tiny bit of space for that kind of, you know, you, you go into a room full of people and you're all yelling at the screen and throwing footballs and spoons. And oh, yeah. <laughs> there is that kind of blurred boundary between, am I laughing at this or with this? Uh, is this even about the movie or is it about this weird community of people who have come together? Um, and, and I think that's, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you can only wring so much out of that before you're like, okay, I get it. Tommy Wiseau's weird. Let's move on mm-hmm. to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of the last note that I have before we get to our lightning round, but Ooh. I do sometimes think, um, yeah, I've been I've been adding a lightning round lately to episodes and um, I've been really enjoying myself with it. Um, but it. I sometimes think that, and this is where I'll say again, I'm, I'm so a less generous film reviewer than you. I'm less generous to Scream 3 in this sense. I find sometimes being meta can be used as a deflection from criticism. Um, like, yeah. I actually think one of the worst shows or cultural objects for this is the show Community, which I did like up to a certain point. But if you criticize anything or any element, you get back from defenders. Oh, you don't get it. It's a meta joke. And the joke is actually on you. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, well, the meta commentary here just isn't effective. And um, yeah. so because and even because Scream is more grounded in reality than something like Nightmare on Elm Street, we can't just have these films be this ridiculous cast of characters with no concept of reality. So, like, when I say I draw a line, I know that sounds very hyperbolic, but I do draw a line at Jay and Silent Bob showing up. And I like Kevin Smith. And it's like, so yeah. when I hear, like, oh, but it's meta, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's meta and bad. And, and also, yeah. I think there's there's also, and I was thinking about this because I was thinking about why I love Gail as a character so much and also why I love Stu. And I'm saving one of my favorite one-liners for the lightning round, but um, uh, there are certain aspects of them that are so hammy. And I think sometimes we confuse hammy with sweaty and the other way around. And there's a weird fine line where something, and this is like the most disgusting conversation, two people here who don't eat meat, but, um, and all I can think of is sweaty ham. But um, sometimes a joke is really hammy and knows it's really hammy. And I think that's really effective. But then other times it's going so out of its way to be that way that it becomes sweaty. And I think yeah. there are certain elements of three and to a slightly lesser extent four that can just be a little bit too sweaty. But in the first two, it's borderline flawless how well the hammy stuff comes off. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I think 
you know, you, you already in the first film, you get these kind of jokes that are, they're not even jokes unless you know that they're references to friends. Uh, you, you get kind of Gail <laughs> Weathers making a reference to, you know, the, the nude photo that Jennifer we prefer, but it's actually yeah. Jennifer Aniston's body. Uh, and that kind of keeps going where, where, uh, where Dewey is played by, uh, by, oh God, what's his name? Ross. Um, um, David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer. Uh, and they're like complaining about who plays them in the movie version of the first scream. Uh, like that just kind of keeps going through all the films. And I kind of like that stuff, but you're right. I think it kind of crosses a a certain line with, with Jay and Silent Bob and Carrie Fisher. I mean, I love Carrie Fisher so much. Oh, who doesn't? Yeah. The role in Scream 3 does feel very like everything in the kitchen sink here. Like we're just throwing every Hollywood thing we can at you. Uh-huh. So we're entering the lightning round, and I, I really would love to get some sort of DJ Airhorn like bow, 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 kind of thing for this, but <laughs> in the end, I gotta stick to my my homemade foley. Um, yeah, so, or if you can if you can get like the the lightning sound effect from from Frankenstein or something. The lightning <laughs> round. <laughs> I should find that. So, Fred, <laughs> are you pro or anti Randy dying? I am proer than pro. Um, I absolutely love Randy's death. I think he's a great character. Um, and I think his death, you, you know, like I said earlier, this is a franchise that really focuses on the survivors. So you already get the sense of the main cast kind of being invulnerable. So his death really does come as a shock, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially so because he's kind of billed as necessary. He's He's yeah. like he's the guy who reads the rules to us. He's like this kind of Greek chorus who like, you know, we have this kind of special bond with Randy. Um, so, mm-hmm. so getting rid of him, there's something really bold about, about saying, yeah, we can kind of do this without our omniscient cinephile character. It's fine. We, mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll find our way through. And, and then the series totally does still find its way through. You get to kind of have this, this, uh, this hyper intertextual kind of thing going on where, where you then add, you know, the myth of Cassandra and, and like this, this much richer history of storytelling that goes beyond movies and a movie buff like Randy. Um, Mm. So I think, yeah, I, I I love Randy's death. I, I think um, I will say generally pro. However, my controversial take is I think Randy should have died in the first one and Tatum should have survived just because I think Tatum is a more interesting character who just got kind of done dirty and I want to say like killed for the sake of having a very interesting death. Um, I think killing Randy in the first film would have subverted the trope. Like, I mean, on the one hand, we wouldn't have had the great line of like, I've never been happier to be a virgin. Um, on the other hand, it would have been great to say like, haha, virgins can die. Um, but yeah. um so with randy the one thing i do find i think you're absolutely right i think they needed to kill someone from the first movie to remind us that like anyone can die um if if i could like it has to be someone and if i could have picked someone that would have made it to the second movie it would have probably have had to been dewey um but when you look at it it's like okay of all the people left i guess like randy is the okayest to kill at that point but in the third film, I have, like, I was so, we haven't even talked about the worst part of the third film, which is that they kind of have their cake and eat it too with Randy being gone, which is like the, you know, his sister or whatever showing up with the yeah. VHS of like, oh, if, if, if you find yourself in a trilogy, like, um, so I think that was, you know, you're right. Randy was their Greek chorus, but it's almost like they wrote themselves into a corner and realized they couldn't do it without him. And I, I kind of like, if you want to kill yeah. Randy, you need to commit to this. 
Yeah, and I think that's interesting because he also – there's kind of a, a, a point of diminishing returns with Randy where – he doesn't do that much explaining in Scream 2. Like, he gives us his... No, you're right. Oh, well, if, if this is a sequel, there's this, this, and this. And then that's it, you know? He doesn't have his big, uh, his big like, standing up in front of the TV and yelling at all the other uh, all the other mm-hmm. youths who are about to die. Uh, he yeah. doesn't really get to have that in the second one. And I, I think he doesn't have anyone to bounce off three. of. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have anyone to bounce off of, like, because Sid is more, like... She's got her boyfriend and she's got her roommate and Randy's just kind of like hanging out in a food court with Dewey. Yeah. And we already have his film class, right? Like those people already yeah. kind of filled us in on what sequels should and shouldn't do. So, so I, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. He, his death would have worked very well in the first film as well. Yeah. Like I'm generally, like I said, I'm generally fine with it. And it was, it was also a really good death in the sense that it wasn't a classic scream death where there's this big like action scene build up to it. It was just snap like Laurie Laurie Metcalf can somehow just pull uh pull him into a van because it was. I yeah. think it's implied that it was Mrs. Loomis that did it because he insulted Billy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So best one liner. Ooh. Okay. I okay. I'm I'm screen two for when the series peaked mostly. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, my my favorite one-liner is definitely from Scream 1, and it's Stu with the most, like, tragic sense of sincerity, uh-huh. bleeding out, saying, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. I love um, that one. I love it so much. It was almost mine. It's, um, so, it's so good. It's so it, memorable. It, like, it communicates so much about Stu as a character as just this mm-hmm. kind of, like, this this boy who's never had to really face real consequences. So after mm-hmm. everything that's happened, after all of these deaths that he's responsible for, and after he and his his best friend slash lover have just stabbed each other, that's all he's thinking of is, oh no, I'm going to be in trouble with mom and dad. Yeah. It's it's absolutely like the tragedy is in the contrast because he's just explained to you how they masterminded this whole thing, and he goes yeah. instantly into a little boy. Um, it's such a great commentary on like not not fear of god because this isn't really making any commentary on religion at all but um fear of death and yeah um yeah so mine is more of a funny one um and it's um i could save a man's life do you know what this could do to my book sales um which i think is just the <laughs> perfect amount of ham and cheese without the sweatiness um and i think yeah. it's something that like it's kind of like, you get it? It was a joke. Like, it's not, this is where I say scream is a heightened reality. That's not something anyone would say, even the most actual selfish person. But Gail is yeah. a personification of the quote unquote saying the quiet part loud. Um, that's yeah. her role. That's what she does. And I just think it's the perfect kind of Gail's almost a caricature moment. Yeah, like she's like whatever the whatever the journalist version of an ambulance chaser. That's Gail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, God, she's um, such a good character. I love Gail. <laughs> me too. Um, uh, so I think that in Shriek, that's who Tiffany Amber Thiessen kind of takes on as the Gail character. Um, oh, okay. So best killer. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go back to back to Scream Two for that one because Mickey mm-hmm. and Mrs. Loomis. Well, I mean, like I said, they just feel like the perfect balance of completely out of nowhere, but then they make perfect sense. Um, I think it's it's such a nice a nice way to continue the franchise uh, without really overdoing the legaciness of it. You know, there's no like, oh, Michael Myers was was her was her brother the whole time. It's it's yeah. like. <laughs> No, it's like, it, it makes sense, but at the same time, it's this fun new thing. 
Yeah, and I, like, I like see... you said, Laurie Metcalf, you know, she can be in anything, She's... and Timothy Oliphant as well. I think having them added to the mix is just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, um, I I will say I somewhat default to Scream One, um, and we'll say Stu and Billy. However, I my kind of honorable mention goes to Jill. Um, I think Emma Roberts is so good at playing playing a killer and playing, yeah. you know, the axe crazy kind of thing. And um, I mean, Scream Scream has had, I guess, one female killer, but never a young female killer. And I just think the unhingedness that she brought to it was probably the most comparable to Stu. Because like Stu was to me like the most compelling in like his final scenes. Um, and I think like, there have been other ones that other movies that tried to ape that again, like I'll come back to urban legends. I think, um, uh, Nogzima girl, what's her name? Did definitely was trying to go for a stew type of thing in her villainous breakdown yeah. scene. But totally. I, I think, I think Emma Roberts, uh, comes close. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm totally with you. She's, she's absolutely terrific. And I think that there's like an updating with her of the, of the whole scream, uh, kind of formula of having her having her wanting to go viral, basically. Uh, yeah. I think it, it, it felt it felt a little bit like an, an old person's view of millennials, but at the same time, I, I do think it kind of worked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your favorite setting: Woodsboro, the college, or Hollywood? I'm gonna throw Scream Three some love and say Hollywood. Um, I think there there's a nice little tying up every loose end by having having the setting be Hollywood where you have recreations of Sydney's childhood home and and she doesn't quite know how to navigate that because oh no, this door doesn't actually lead anywhere the way it does in my real home and oh, I, I yeah. think that was a really a really fun play on the whole on the whole thing. So I have to generally agree with you in that even though I rarely throw Scream through any love because I think Hollywood is a great natural conclusion to it. I do love that you go bring it back to Woodsboro in Scream 4 and that's kind of like a nice chef's kiss um, button on it. But I think at that point, you've already changed locations once to college where I think that's another thing about Scream 2. I think it just doesn't work in college. Um, Maybe that's also the thing that the fat that could have been trimmed out of Scream 2 is the gosh darn, um, you know, Agamemnon like play thing. Um, (laughs) We didn't, I mean, I got to see Nev Campbell dance. She's a wonderful dancer, but we didn't need Sydney in a play, I think. Um, And uh, yeah, I... So I think Hollywood was a great natural conclusion and actually made for some really fun bits. Um, Best death. Uh, This is, so for me, the best death really goes back to the the opening scene of Scream 1. Casey Becker is, for me, the absolute best death. The the whole scene, the whole lead up to her death, like, what a haunting scene. the the movie trivia is just kind of a, a fun little intro to what the like what the stakes of this movie are going to be. Um, the, the twists and turns in it, where where you think she's kind of bluffing and making up a fake boyfriend, but no, actually her boyfriend is on the way and he is the captain of the football team. But that's not going to help. He's poor. He's what was die. his name? Steve. Uh, Steve really yeah, gets that, that it. Steve. gets the short end. Yeah, short. he does. Yeah. And um I think one of the one of the things that really does it for me though with that death is the way uh the camera kind of stays in her house even after she's dead and waits for her parents to arrive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, there's something about that moment of parental grief uh, yeah. where her mother picks up the phone and hears her daughter dying. It just hits so hard and you have this kind of just like really, really intense sense of like, oh my God, this is, this is a kid. Like it's Drew Barrymore playing her. She was like three or something at the time. So it's like, it doesn't make any sense, but you, you kind of get that moment that pulls it back down to this is a kid and like a child has just died. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it just like, it, yeah, it, it just hits hard. I, I absolutely love that, that death in, in Scream. To be a bit of a um, well, actually, guy, Drew Barrymore was twenty at the time, but she did. Oh, what? She? Yeah, she was born in seventy-five. Oh, okay. I just remember yeah. her being too old for the role, but twenty really, like, by Hollywood teenager standards, that's that's not that old. <laughs> I gotta say that haircut was really common in the nineties, but I look at that and nowadays I'm like, no teenager has that haircut. <laughs> no, you know, I um, think I was. I think that was a reference to Barbara Crompton from from Reanimator. I I feel like they must have been trying to do that because yeah, that that was like an odd look for mm-hmm. it not not to be a horror movie throwback. Mm-hmm. But so it totally, my favorite... I, I think you're right. It it like adds to that sense that like this we're not looking at a teenager from 1996 here. That's not who this no, is. And her... Her little cozy sweater. Um, So my favorite death, I feel like such a simpleton because your favorite death is all about the emotion and the buildup and stuff. And my favorite death is simply about this was cool and it gave me nightmares. I got to bring it back to Tatum, even though, you know, Tatum is, you know, I wish she had made it. But the sequence of her death um, and also the way it happened, like Tatum was kind of like the contrast with Stu's breakdown. Um, she goes from being like really sassy, like, please don't kill me. I want to be in the sequel to, you know, just yeah. dying in the most helpless way. Um, yeah. And I don't think anyone in horror has been killed by a garage door before or since. So, um, yeah, I don't think yeah. I've seen that before. And it's also just the fact that it occurs at the party and no one knows it's happened. Like that is yeah. a really awful thing. Like by the time Sid runs out of the house, We've almost forgotten about it. Like her coming upon her body is a surprise to us too. Yeah, yeah, I, mm. I totally agree. And and there's something. It's like clearly not a funny death, but I, I think Scream totally plays with that line between humor and and like just shocking violence. Mm-hmm. Um, because that that sort of happens again in Scream Four with I think if I could pick a second favorite death, it would probably be Anthony Anderson the, as the uh-huh. cop. Who yeah. gets stabbed right in the forehead, and there's something immediately kind of like you can't help but laugh, uh, uh-huh. and he's kind of stumbling around, and then the scene just kind of lasts just a little too long. So you have that initial like, "Ha, what a what a death!" And then as it goes, you're you're just kind of like, "Oh my god, this poor man is just like crawling around, slowly dying yeah. in front of us." Like if they had cut just like five seconds earlier, you would just have this kind of like funny out of nowhere death but instead it, it really it gives you that full range of emotions that you get from a from a really good screen death you feel bad watching it by the end um yeah. which is you know like you talk about how the the saw franchise of films can be fascinating and it's because at a certain point i think um you start to feel voyeuristic with the deaths yeah yeah totally um so then least favorite death and i will say i thought least favorite death in terms of like this pissed me off that they were killed but you can also be like least inspired death in terms of the scene (laughs) um you know i kind of wish Haley had had a better death and i'm and i guess 
that might be that might go back to um, that might go rewrite issues. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if she was initially supposed to be one of the killers, maybe they just had to quickly do something about her, and that just yeah, that felt a little a little too quick and cheap. And I and I think especially because she was one of the very few black characters in the film. Uh-huh. And the film very overtly in that opening scene where Jada Pinkett Smith and uh, and Omar Epps die, mm-hmm. you know that that for me there's something a bit unexplored in the way the film tells you horror films always kill the black characters first, and it's a problem. And then the and film then they does do that. just that. Then, yeah, they do just that, and they don't really like. There's no real lesson other than like we just did what horror films do, yeah. um, and then you get you know you get like a tiny little handful of other characters who aren't who aren't these like white college kids, and and one of them dies this kind of like this kind of meaningless death. She just happened to be with Sid at the wrong time and got killed. And even like in the first film, Kenny the cameraman, like, um, and or and is Gail's boom mic guy? Is he also killed in the second movie? I think he is. Um, but I can't remember. Um, her, like, that... like the cameraman who was who was assigned to her. Yeah, because he oh, no, he also okay because he does have some commentaries as well about being a black character in a horror movie. But um... he he does yeah. yeah he's he's sort of the saving grace because he he has that kind of like you know what fuck this I'm out of here and that's what yeah. saves him. <laughs> it would have just been nice if he had been more of a character, but I feel like that's a lesson that I look forward to them hopefully having him learned in um in scream five um, yeah so my least favorite death does come from the fact that i wish this character hadn't died or i wish they died at a different time but i found and and i'll say i agree with you fully Haley's death was really inelegant and like graceless and there's it felt like there it would have been nice to kind of maybe honor it a little bit more because she was yeah. post rewrite such she was a good friend to sid um yeah. but no for me cotton weary and like I haven't talked enough about Cotton Weary. Um, I I love his character in the second movie because he's not really a character in the first. He's more of a mythical figure in the first. But um, you know, kind of like you say about Gale, like he's intensely unlikable, but you still root for him because he's still also been through something insanely traumatic, like being wrongfully imprisoned and stuff. Like I'd probably be a bit of a fame hungry jerk too if that happened to me. Um, yeah. And like with. I really love the tension between him and Sid at the end and Mrs. Loomis and everything. So the fact that he's killed and like, I guess I don't necessarily have a problem with the fact that he's killed. Cause again, like a survivor from one of the films has to kind of die in every film in order for it to feel legitimate. Yeah. I have a pro I have a big problem with the fact that it's the cold open because I would have liked more opportunities for him to kind of interact with the rest of the cast. Cause he doesn't really get a chance to do that with anyone except Sydney. And yeah, and maybe, I mean, Gail, I guess there's a dynamic with him and Gail, but um, it's kind of like they said, like, okay, like, I mean, I don't know, maybe Leo Schreiber just wasn't available anymore, but uh, it's like, okay, we, we had our fun with your character. Now we don't know what to do with you, so you're done. Like, it feels, it feels rewritey almost. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not the fact that he dies, it's the fact that he dies in the cold open before we get a chance to see him do anything else. Yeah, he he could have just been written out of the series after Scream Two if they couldn't get Liv Schreiber for for longer than they had. I I agree, and and I I do think he is just an asshole. Like I I think it would have been really easy to have the wrongfully convicted guy come out of that and be this just like you know beacon of of goodness. 
But he, mm-hmm. yeah, he's selfish. He's a little dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. Right before his death in Spring 2, we see he's a terrible partner, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's just kind of, he, he's just kind of this asshole who's wronged. And it's like, that's enough. The fact that he was wrongfully imprisoned is enough for us to sympathize with what happened to him. Yeah, um, I thought it was great and, commentary. So Yeah. Um, yeah and then totally. finally, favorite non-Sydney character? I'm going to go with a popular choice and say Kirby from Scream 4. Um, yeah, a lot I of think, people feel that way. Yeah, she's such a fan favorite. I know there's been like a huge movement. I, I think we don't we don't really ever see her her body at the end of Scream 4. We don't like she she could kind of have one of those dewy moments of like she was stabbed but she's okay. So I, I think there's like a, a huge call for her to come back in uh, yeah. in Scream 5. But yeah, I think I think she kind of fits that Tatum profile you were talking about where she's the popular girl, she's the hot girl, she's like she's all of these kind of tropes. But then she's also way smarter about movies than all of these like movie buff guys who are kind of just obnoxious little shit. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I, I love that. There's that that moment where she's being quizzed the way uh, the way Casey Becker had been, and she just completely nails it. And the killer was like, "Oh yeah, you, you got it. I, I guess I have to let you live." Uh, mm-hmm. Was such a was such such a fun play. I think a lot of people forget, like, because they think of Hayden Panettiere as just like a teen queen because she did so many, you know, Disney-ish teen queen movies. That yeah. she actually is very much an action girl. Like this was right after she did Heroes, um, yeah. and she is so good at action and so good. Like she would be a great final girl, and I kind of wanted her. Like, I mean, she's I think she's my age, so she's too old for quote unquote teen movies now. But like, she would be a great final girl, and I would love for her to have had that moment. Um, yeah, and I love she's like tiny too, and she's like the yeah. biggest personality in the room. <laughs> yeah, that's that's gymnast for you because Hayden Panettiere uh, was a gymnast, and um, oh yeah, they're, yes, uh, artistic gymnasts—they're all like that. Um, but um, so my my will surprise no one, and it's the least original take. But my favorite character who is in Sydney is Gail, um, because I yeah. just I I think I've talked about this on some of my other episodes, um, and I kind of forget which ones now. But oh yeah, I mean. I talk about it a bit on my Parks and Rec episode and stuff, but like likability and um, like value as a person um, have no correlation to me. And um, that likability doesn't preclude you from being smart. Likability doesn't preclude you from being clever. And on a moral sense, like beyond movies, like in reality, likability or lack thereof doesn't doesn't strip away your right to live. And that like... There are certain times when I had to and accept about people I don't like, they're still smarter than me and or yeah. they, they're still more athletic than me or something. And that's Gail. Like Gail tests you as because like she is she's awful to everyone around her. You know, she's awful to Dewey in so many ways, you know, by the fourth. And so I think it's great that by the fourth movie, like their marriage is falling apart. Um, yeah. And. I just think Gail is a great, she to me is one of the best commentaries, not on horror movies, but just on movies in general of like, someone doesn't have to be likable in order for them to deserve to live. And like Courtney Cox plays, like Courtney Cox is really underrated as an actress. Like for all she did in the nineties, it's like, she should be a legend and she should be the one getting all like the big, you know, yogurt campaigns and shit, but she's not. Um, Cause I think it it has to be something about Courtney Cox's charm and self-awareness in her delivery that makes makes me love gail so much 
Yeah, and, and we get to watch Gale grow in a way that I think I don't think any of the other characters get quite as much space to change and evolve as characters. While at the same time, and I think I think like you said, this is totally this is totally Courtney Cox doing this. She stays absolutely true to who Gail is. There isn't yeah. this kind of like come to God moment of like, oh, oh no, she's like you know born again Gail. It's like no, she's still like this kind of like ruthless and mean character, but she yeah. does she softens a little bit in a way that feels believable and really satisfying. I think. With with series, and this is absolutely something that happened with The Office, Parks and Rec, and like a lot of comedies, is a lot of creators realize, oh, this character's really popular. We need to make them nicer or whatever. And that's why, yeah. like, I have this, I have this piece on Medium. Just plugging my Medium essays, calling it, the thing you call character development isn't really character development. It's right, like right. you know, like Chris Pratt's character in Parks and Rec. Everyone decided he was lovable, so they rewrote him as more lovable. And yeah. whereas they managed to not do that to Gail. Like, people really like her. Let's not suddenly make Gail more sympathetic or whatever. It's like, let's keep yeah. doing what what she's doing. And, I, yeah, love that. Because um, even you talk about, like, transfer development and S- even Sydney doesn't get that much development for good reason, which is because most of Sid's development is through trauma. Yeah, which she has in Scream 1 already. It's not like Scream yeah. 2, suddenly she's living with the trauma of the events of Scream 1. Like, she's already dealing with the death of her mother, which, like, Violence happened less as hell. than a year before it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and the trauma of the trial and everything. And also, like, I kind of wish they'd explored more in Scream 2 with the dynamic between Sid and Cotton. Is like, the trauma of knowing that she ruined someone else's life. And, yeah. like... And it wasn't, I don't think anyone ever says she's a bad person for it. Um, yeah. You know, even Cotton doesn't seem that angry at her, all things considered. But um, yeah, like it's, Sid, Sid just gets a rough go. Like by the end of it, it's like, man, how, like to, to quote from We Hate Movies, how is she not catatonic by the end? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so now we've we've barreled to our, our conclusion. And um, one thing I've learned throughout the series is that everyone has a different definition of peak. Some people, you know, consider it the peak of, to be like the highest quality. Some people consider it like when it could have ended or whatever. So what you think is a peak is what you think is a peak. So, Fred, when do you feel the Scream franchise peaked? For me, it, I, would, I would say it was Scream 2. I think Scream 2 really cemented Scream as a franchise. Uh, in a way that I think a lot of sequels don't manage to do. I think it's, you know, like I said, people people pick, like, all of these as their favorite Scream films. In a way that, like, you know, there's nobody there's nobody pulling for Halloween 4 or something as, like, the best Halloween film. Uh, I, I think every franchise kind of dips at some point. I think maybe Child's Play is the only one I can think of where I love all seven of those movies in the same way that I love all, all four of the Scream movies. So for me... I have to give it to Scream 2. I think Scream 1 will always have a special place in my heart, but Scream 2 kind of just feels like the peak for me. Yeah, and for me, I think Scream 2 is the peak because I think it is just a great continuation of the story, a great continuation thematically. I also think it's... Maybe I'm getting a little big for my britches here. I think it's kind of impossible to have a film like Scream that has the thesis that Scream does and not have a sequel. Um... Because that's, I mean, you're you're doing commentary on horror movies and saying, I want to be in the sequel. To not have a sequel would feel like a weird betrayal. Um, now, as much as I don't like Scream 3, I will say that if you had ended after Scream 3 and you had, you know, what was 
the stinker of the series, even though I don't think it's actually that bad. It just has a lot to live up to. If you had ended after Scream 3, I would have been fine. I would still believe Scream 2 is the best. And I will say I was actually really nervous about Scream 4. And the creators are very lucky it was good. They are very lucky it was good because otherwise we would have a Halloween 4 situation. Um, And so I'm still really holding my breath about Scream 5 because Craven Craven is no longer. And Scream 4 even felt more like a reunion than a sequel. So Scream 2, like I would say... I would love to live in a universe where Scream 2 or Scream 3 were the last that were made, but that's just because I, I get so attached to certain things. I'm like, I don't want it to be bad. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, those kind of legacy sequels are always a little bit about, oh, where's this going to go? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's one question I always ask people, which is like, would you recommend chronology or remote roulette? But I really think, like, I, I never like to presume what a host is going to say, but... I don't think with Scream you can watch it anyway, other than chronologically. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think Scream Two you can watch on its own, but I definitely, I definitely recommend watching watching them in order because it's. it's I mean, if for no other reason than to watch Gale grow as a person, uh, yeah. I, I, I think it, it just it just works the way they came out. <laughs> yeah, the the main mythos I think in Scream Two that you you beat you'd be kind of lost with without having seen Scream 1 is the Cotton Weary mythos. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I it can work somewhat on its own, but I think, yeah, it Scream 2 is the perfect complement. And then Scream 3 is a decent conclusion. Everything after this is like, a, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So Fred, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and thank you so much for telling us about um, your book, Extra Salty, uh, which is available, I think you said October 5th. Yeah, I I couldn't tell you right now when this is coming out because my schedule is so messed up. But either way, it is available for pre-order now. So, folks, look up Extra Salty Support Independent Publishing. Um, And also, any any particular articles of yours or pieces online that you want people to read? Because there are a few of yours that I personally really love. So, yeah, you. I mean, you can find my stuff on. Currently, I write, I write it for AndroidAuthority.com, where you'll find a lot of streaming and entertainment coverage from me. Uh, and if you look me up on uh, Vice and Paste, you'll find my rantings on everything from Alien Resurrection to Jennifer's Body to Ginger Snaps uh, to the Transformers franchise, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on the show, Bree. This, is, this has been terrific, and there are a few things as fun as talking about how great Scream and all of its sequels are. Um, yeah, this, this has been great. Thank you. Well, thank you, Fred. As for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Twitter at Breganism. That's like veganism with a B-R-E-E. Our theme music is by Jack Dump, and they actually composed this piece originally for the show. So thank you so much to Jack Dump. You can find them on bandcamp.com slash jackdump. Our show logo and all show art is made by my husband, Jared Daly, and new episodes are due at every two weeks. If you go through our back catalog, we've got thoughts on Malcolm in the Middle, King of the Hill, Parks and Recreation, So You Think You Can Dance, The Mighty Ducks, Saw, The Office, and a whole month on The Simpsons. We've got episodes coming up on America's Next Top Model, on Seinfeld, on Arrested Development, and more. So take it easy, keep peeking. Sydney? Cut and meet Billy Loomis's mother. She's the killer. What?
And who's that? The other killer, Mickey. Okay. 